Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Goddess of my ancestors, goddess of fate, of life and death, and everything in between, I hail you. Spinner of the threads of destiny, goddess of creativity, protector of women, mighty power, to you I pray. Great mother, ancient and fierce, bestower of many blessings, Bless me, I pray. May I walk always in your favor. May I always praise you wisely and well. Hail, Mokosh. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. My name is James Stovall, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Sarenth Odinson. How are you tonight, Sarenth? I'm doing quite well. Good sleep, good food. <laughs> you guys are listening to episode number 16 of Around Grandfather Fire. We're going to have a really great guest tonight. Uh, that opening prayer was actually from the, the back of a prayer card that Sarenth gifted to me. And, and the prayer is by Galina Kraskova, who we had on the show just a couple episodes ago. So I thought that was a nice way of rounding things out a little bit. Um, making some decisions over at convocation. Sarah and I just got back from convocation last weekend where oh, spirit yeah. was kind of poking me quite hard that I should get a little bit more into my Slavic heritage of, of some of these worships and techniques. So uh, it was a great weekend though. <laughs> yeah. Spirit kind of uh, shoved me to push that right into your hands. So <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it was just funny how it all worked out. I, it was one of those things I was contemplating, and all of a sudden, there's Sarenth with a prayer card to a Slavic deity, and it's like, oh, all right, I got it. I got you. Here's your sign. Yeah, time to start ordering a couple of those books I've been eyeballing. So uh, how did you find uh, Convocation, Sarenth? Did you have a good time? Or I had a good time overall. I was just really tired because I was right. kind of in recovery at the same time from work. Yeah, it was, and it's amazing how weekends like that take so much energy out of you. Yeah, they do. Um, more than they used to. I used to be like all over the place. Every hour that I was awake, I was going to a workshop. Now it's, uh, I can handle people for about an hour and a half, maybe three hours, and then I'm going to go rest. Right, exactly. Exactly. And they, you know, I, I got hit pretty hard. Friday night was my big night because they gave me both my classes on, on one one evening it was the gym makes people cry friday as we did the talking stick and then a couple mm -hmm. hours later did the fire ceremony a fire ceremony indoors that was kind of tricky to work out but um yeah it sounded like it i unfortunately <laughs> did not make it but if you guys ever get a chance to go to one of jim's fire ceremonies i highly recommend no oh, thank you i appreciate that your class was really well the one i went to was uh, good as well the conversation about tribalism and, and tribes and and how those different things came together that was very fascinating as well thank you i was i was honored to have everybody on that panel amabron ellie shaven ken day and i really appreciated everybody's input um it was just a really good back and forth. And as a mob run kept 
you know, joking about, you know, it's almost like we have these common identifiers. <laughs> yeah, right. No doubt. No doubt. So and then, it's made a lot easier. And then we, we had a chance people. to do interviews and stuff as well. Uh, Sarenth and I were both on uh, Three Pagans and a Cat, and that's going to be a simulcast release. So we're waiting for the edited version to come down, but you're going to find that on their channel and ours the exact same day when that's all said and ready to go. That was a fun interview. I really oh, appreciate it. Oh, man, that was great. Uh, I can't wait for it to drop. Oh, I it was a good lengthy interview too. It was, it really was. And it was nice because they, they're coming at it from a uh, slightly more Wiccan sort of aspect, but definitely pagan and, and their backgrounds are a little bit different than ours. So it was a good back and forth conversation. A lot of good topics. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a witch, a, a druid and a heathen. So it's a really fun mix. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And then uh, I was interviewed for another podcast called the human tapestry and that's going to be coming out uh, this Friday. That'll be releasing to the, the wide world. And I've got some special announcements on that one about some things that I'm doing that I, I kind of promised that I would leave as exclusives to them. But I'll fill you guys in on the details probably the next episode of this show. Excellent. Looking forward to it. And then, oh, well, I'm thinking of upcoming things, too, if I can throw that in there. Also, uh, next Tuesday, the 12th, I'm going to be on... Uh, answers with the astral bag lady on back on our old home of para x and that's going to be six to eight o'clock i'll be on there as the guest there oh excellent okay um so what will we be going over do you know yet you know what i'm not sure you know the thing is with uh <laughs> with l is she and i we just have these great conversations it's kind of like you and i and we just kind of mm. ramble about everything and she takes a, a good half hour and does her astrology uh predictions and her astrology predictions go really well and uh um they're very insightful and then but the rest of the other you got an hour and a half where people just kind of talk about whatever it's a great time to join into the chat room because she's got a really good background she's done a lot of drumming with native americans and and fascinating stuff like that so it's a fun show oh excellent excellent okay and you said that was next tuesday that'll be next tuesday 6 to 8 p.m eastern time of course Gotcha. So we'll probably we'll probably end up going into depth a little bit more on on a, a convocation here in another show. But uh, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about right off the top of your head? Anything that you wanted to bring up? Not offhand. <laughs> You're an no. easy one, huh? I am. I really am. Uh, there's well, actually, you know, besides my usual reading books. <laughs> um. I just got through uh, The World We Used to Live In by Vine Deloria Jr. Highly mm-hmm. recommend it. Uh, I just got through another book uh, called Riding the Wind Horse by Sarangarel, which is on Buryat shamanism. Oh, wow. Uh, which is, uh, in, yeah, it's in Mongolia. It's an excellent book. And I'm starting to read through uh, once more uh, Chosen by the Spirits, which is another book by the same author, Sarangarel, and explores Buryat shamanism and what that looks like. And it's, it's fascinating uh, how many, and it's just kind of like the polytheism and tribal societies panel where it's like, okay, we have these, these really, really common threads that we work through uh, when you look between different spirit workers of different traditions. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's cool. I love when that kind of stuff comes together. 
And uh, man, I hope I'm making fine. I'm, I'm doing a class myself right now, so hopefully I'll be able to get to doing some of my reading at some point in time in the near future because I have to get a couple of those <laughs> same books under my under my belt as well. Good luck. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. I can do everything. Right. Yeah, you've done it so far. <laughs> Sleep. It's overrated. That's for the dead I hear. <laughs> So, do you want to introduce our guest tonight, or shall I? So, uh, Dvar is a dedicated spirit worker who primarily serves by creating tangible artifacts, which function as doors between worlds. The mask which can invite the other side inside the wearer, the puppet whose movements bring the uncanny to life, the skull painted with a map of another world, the message woven into a tangle of sticks and leaves left to be found by the right person at the right time. Um, so... Dever is somebody that I've, I've known through polytheist circles, mostly through her blog, and I'm, I'm very excited to be having her on. She has uh, had amazing posts that I have gained insight from, and I really appreciate you being able to show up tonight, Dever. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. We're glad to have you. My, uh, my blog's been mostly dormant for a while so this is me sticking my head up out of the <laughs> cave for a little bit <laughs> into you know, the light Sarah, have you noticed that tends to happen here we've got uh, a little mean, bit this is not the first person that said yeah my blog hasn't been active for a while but so here i am on the show it's like we're the <laughs> we're, we're forcing people to re-emerge here it's kind of crazy yeah well it's uh, at, at some point i just felt like i had pretty much said what i felt like saying and was ready to kind of recede a little bit and uh, work on my private practice and, and not be so much of a public figure. And uh, But I still do poke my head out now and then <laughs> when it, invited. <laughs> it's important to take that time, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think there's definitely a danger as somebody who was somewhat of a public figure in polytheism for quite a long time. And I wrote a lot of books and I ran a lot of groups and, you know, went to conferences and did the whole thing. And, and that's great. Uh, but I find that it was a hard balance sometimes. Mm. And that uh, I think, you know, there is definitely a risk if you're in that zone of spending so much time talking about what you do that you're not doing it anymore. Oh my gosh. Yes. So uh, I think, <laughs> decided I needed to take this time self and, and also just kind of, I was feeling a pull to, to live more offline in a general sense. I've been uh, working on building tangible localized uh, practice and uh, not having all the distractions of internet drama and all. <laughs> what? There's <laughs> drama on the internet? <laughs> I love reading, you know, when I read something oh everybody's been talking about this arguing about this or that lately on facebook or whatever and i have no idea i'm blissfully <laughs> doing my thing yeah, where i've been <laughs> <laughs> so, and i've been pretty productive because i've had that time to to focus Excellent. Would you like to talk about some of the things you've been working on lately or some of the projects that have been uh, part of your cycle? Sure. Um, well, one thing I've been working on for the last 
uh, about a year or so really uh, dedicatedly is uh, uh, investigating poison plants, working with uh, the spirits of poison plants in a variety of capacities, which is something that I'd always been drawn to and I had done a lot of reading on. But uh, which is, I think, where most people stop, and that's probably <laughs> where they should stop. <laughs> but I took it a few steps further, started um, learning how to grow some of these plants, and then started actually ingesting or using them in some other physical capacity and trying to see where that takes me as I, you know, combine that always with the spirit work angle. And it's been interesting and scary <laughs> wow not for wimps let me tell you <laughs> no it doesn't sound like it sounds uh it sounds pretty uh dangerously close to the edge sometimes i suppose well I- i'm pretty careful i do a lot of research um for sure uh and and do things in tiny tiny increments to make sure i don't you know end up on the news somewhere but uh <laughs> but it's <laughs> It's definitely been interesting because, you know, I've worked with entheogens for decades. It's been entheogen use is a very large part of my practice and always has been. But I find that some of these poison plants, the the ones that are really poisonous, (laughs) there's just a level of something else going on with them. You know, there's a difference between, uh, I don't know, say... Amanita muscaria, there's a you know, fly agaric mushroom, there's a mushroom I've been using and working with and doing for many years. And, you know, you can get sick from that to some degree, but it's it's not, but I feel like it's primarily an entheogen. It's primarily, you know, a fungal teacher or whatever you want to call it, but, but uh, the solanacea plants, you know, henbane, mandrake, belladonna, oh, right. all of that. The, those are those are different. There's just a different, uh, entirely different quality to the experience and a real feeling of of being poisoned, but also being talked to at the same time. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's very curious and and such a perilous spirit. I mean, I thought i specialize kind of in perilous spirits i i deal with some uh you know perilous fey type spirits quite a bit but uh the the solanacea plants the the nightshade family is uh is pretty serious business wow but but you know opening some doors that i don't think i could have opened on my own which is kind of the point so that's really fascinating. Now, so would you say that your 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 primary mode of operation with the shamanic work is uh, plant based? Then is that mostly because you know some people there's there's the old debate about the drum shaman versus the plant shaman sort of thing. Well, technically, I'm not any kind of shaman. I really, <laughs> oh, I don't okay. feel fair. like I, I. Well, I, and, you know, I, I, it's always hard with semantics of these words right. and everybody probably means slightly different thing by the word shaman i just mm-hmm. tend not to use it i don't feel like i fulfill that role in a community sense that i i think is kind of important in that mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. uh so yeah so there's that but i no, i'm i don't 
I don't know that I'm primarily a plant path person. I mean, I do work a lot with animal spirits in the form of uh, rem- bones and other remains. And, oh, right, yeah. You have uh, some gorgeous just, artwork with that, too. Ah, thank you. And, you know, I work with, you know, just in a more broader sense, land spirit and, mm. and what have you. But uh, but definitely because of the, the entheogen path, it's the plant and fungal kingdoms have been pretty close to me for a long time uh, in that way. But, you know, it's I had never really been a gardener <laughs> and oh, I had wow. never I, you know I occasionally tried to grow some stuff and it went middling well or, or whatnot but but I decided I wanted to sit down and really devote myself to trying to grow some of these poison plants partly because you can't get them otherwise right. uh you know they don't generally just you know sell these or you don't find them by the wayside unless you're really lucky so i thought this is the only way i'm going to experience this but the process of growing the plants just took it to a whole other level for me uh it was uh it was a really intense experience uh especially with henbane last year um i had this amazing henbane plants that seemed to die and come back to life. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> uh, I I had I had you know I don't I, I don't know what I'm doing at all. I'm really like <laughs> learning from scratch here. So I had you know so I had been having some limited success and some failures with my attempts to grow things and I had gotten these things to tiny little seedlings and I had but they were doing so well and I had put them in the bed the raised bed outside uh and then they disappeared and i thought they either died or maybe you know well bird came by and ripped <laughs> i mean they're very tiny seedlings and i went oh well you know that's that and and then like a couple weeks later i saw something that i thought was a weed growing in my bed and i looked at it and i said I, that looks kind of like these that i think henbane's supposed to look like and i looked it up and i said yeah that looks like a henbane plant and ended up being this like four foot high plant plant by the end of the wow. summer that came out of nothing like it had completely physically disappeared from the bed and then just came back so i decided that that meant something was going on with that and uh got really involved <laughs> with that plant's growth ever like well there were two two plants but every day looking at her and caring for her and you know, it was just a very intimate experience so much different than you know ordering an herb online and smoking it you know (laughs) taking taking that from seed to plant and then processing the plant drying Mm. and separating the seeds from the capsules from the leaves from the root uh, I carved the root into an owl round um, because the root of henbane can do kind of what the root of mandrake does, oh. become like a human. Interesting. Uh, human shape. So just, just taking all of that and then using every part of the plant has just, uh, it's really a fascinating experience. Uh, and I at least recommend that part of the experience to anyone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know that I'd recommend going ahead and starting to consume these without a whole lot of work. In advance, but well, I gotta wonder, you know, like okay, so curiosity gets to me. What conversations are you having with spirit, or or what 
where where in divination does it crop up where you think you know maybe I should try this poisoning myself thing how did how well, does that come about <laughs> actually in a lot of ways that was building for a long time in my practice uh from a number of levels uh well sickness illness and healing and and sort of that wounded healer thing has been going on in my life for a long time. Um, I have some chronic illness I've been dealing with for a long time. And that has been incorporated into my spiritual life like everything must be incorporated <laughs> into my spirit practice. So, you know, where I, I think for the most part that was just a natural illness that I have developed, I have... Uh, kind of always been approaching it from a spirit angle. Uh, I have uh, an actual spirit ally who is deeply tied to my uh, cycles of illness and and healing. Uh, so, and, and some of the symptoms of that illness kind of mimic poisoning or oh, feel see. like being poisoned. Right. So I've been working with the concepts of poison on that level for for a while um and and working to like transmute poison into something beneficial for a long time so this is sort of an extension of that gotcha so is it kind of am i hearing that it's kind of like the the concepts in in homeopathy where something that gives you the symptoms might actually be the cure so that kind of it, it it's yeah. almost has an equivalent of that in my mind yeah, in a way, because for me, homeopathy is just, you know, it's it's contagious magic or and sympathetic magic, too, actually, in a way. But, right. you know, uh, I don't know, you know, if you could really put it in the in the same category as other just, you know, standard medical treatments. But it's definitely magic. It's, you know, a tiny, tiny touch of the substance imbues the whole, you know, amount with that those properties and that, as you said, like something that is, you know, poison can heal all that kind of sympathetic magic going on uh, is very interesting. Uh, and yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely a similar concept behind what I'm doing. And sometimes what I'm taking is actually a very, very small amount of right. it. And I, you know, because that's when you work on a spirit level, you don't necessarily need it to be physiologically active. You know, you if you have that contact with mm -hmm. the plant, that can be enough because you can contact the spirit that way. Yeah, um, I'm sitting here nodding my head along as you're talking because uh, uh, we have uh, some mugwort hanging up that we had from uh, starters. And mm -hmm. went through the whole process of growing it and drying it. And we've worked with mugwort for a long time in our house. But working with it from the plant and harvesting it and drying it is a different animal entirely. Yes. Yeah. And it helps you understand um, other things, too. Like when you read about these plants and when you like read, say, like historical uses of the plants, you just understand it a lot more if you've actually been through that process. You'll even pick up sometimes where some scholarly conjecture is probably wrong because they don't know what they're talking about because they've never actually grown the thing, you know? 
But I yeah, I, and I love mugwort too, by the way. I had mugwort in my garden last year and probably will again. <laughs> Good luck. You'll never get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the thing. I think it's already coming up if it hasn't been buried by the snow already because uh, it, it never leaves. Sends out those underground runners and you're done for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yep. I do actually think, Sarenth, I might be the only person that I know that has actually managed to kill off mugwort. Wow. <laughs> How? It is notoriously uh, difficult to kill. My my wife uh, had planted it on the edge of the house because she wanted to have some fresh grown, and I was not aware of where it was located, so I was just mowing the lawn. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I just mowed it over. I wasn't paying that close of attention, and uh, it never came back. Like, everybody wow. says, oh, it'll come back. It never, it never did. I don't wow. know what I did. <laughs> Yet somehow mugwort still works with me. Go figure that one out. I haven't yet. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh man. Um you know though, that's a I think that's a really good point though. I mean, because um not long after we harvested the mugwort, the plant just simply died. Oh wow. So yeah, so so don't feel too bad. I've okay, I've killed my own good. chair. I feel a little better. <laughs> but I mean, that's a that's a good point, though. I mean, it's uh, sometimes you know we're the agents that lay it to rest, and that can be powerful work in and of itself. Right. So yeah, it's strange the- when we're also the agents that bring it to life. Often, <laughs> it's a it's a strange relationship. I, I wanted to ask a little bit because you were talking about. Uh, chronic illness. And this is something that I'm very familiar with as my wife deals with it and several other people on on uh, my greater circle of friends and acquaintances. I'm curious, would you mind talking a little bit about how you incorporate that illness into your practice? Because when you mentioned that, that's something that I've been talking about for a long time. There's a, there's a mentality out there, I think, sometimes that you have to fight against it. And where I think a more realistic approach is uh, encompassing it into the greater scheme of the things that you do. Could you talk about how you approach that at all? Yeah, I can try. Um, well, so my partner is uh, an Odin's man, and he always says everything furthers. You know, that's like the Odinic philosophy, everything furthers. So that's, and that's often how I try to look at things too. So if I'm going to have this illness, then I'm going to get something out of it. Whether or not, you know, I, I'm not going to say, oh, it was, you know, sent to me so that I can get something out of it, but I'm going to get something out of it. So for right. instance, I have learned a lot of meditative techniques to deal with nausea because I have a lot of it. So I have uh, learned all sorts of things that have been put to you know transcend uh, myself in many ways uh just just because of that um so that that's one thing for instance uh you know when i i've i've had to learn a lot of discernment about when i have various problems do i need to you know am i supposed to take this as a a note to rest at this time and just take care of my physical self, which is sometimes what you've got to do and you, and, and that's, you just got to put everything aside or is this a situation where I need to challenge myself a little and, you know, do that devotional thing 
regardless of how I'm feeling, because if I stopped every time I felt bad, I would never do anything. <laughs> you know, so it's taught me, it's taught me discernment. It's taught me, uh, you know, perseverance. <laughs> it's taught me self-care. Um, a lot of things. A lot of things. Uh, and it, you know, and when, uh, and especially, I, I'm, I'm doing pretty good these days, but when it was at its worst, you know, uh, learning that when I'm doing well, I have no excuses. I do not put things off. Mm. I do those things to the fullest because I don't know what I'm going to feel like tomorrow. And I might need to cancel everything tomorrow. So while I'm doing well, I really put my all into it. That definitely makes a lot of sense. That is similar to how my wife deals with it. I, I, she says that, you know, on her good days, she's just going to do as much as she possibly can because you just don't mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes you live in the moment <laughs> because you can't plan ahead. <laughs> so, again, taking what blessings one can out of it, uh, it's definitely taught me to be living in the present moment. Um, yeah, and, you know, uh, even... Like, there's a certain, I I finally realized that part of my misery was coming from a part of my brain that was, like, you know, didn't want to accept the physical sensations I'm having, and, and it's kind of fighting against that, and when I tried to, I think of it as kind of riding those sensations, like, kind of like surfing a wave, and mm -hmm. just kind of let myself fall into them that and let go a little bit that that often was a lot more pleasant experience overall so that kind of ties into being a Dionysian and uh, all sorts of stuff about letting go and liberation through very painful means often Dionysus is all about liberating you in ways that often are kind of horrifying <laughs> <laughs> But it all, so it all makes sense, you know, this is how I interpret these things through the, that lens. So as you're talking, I'm, I'm reflecting on, on things that are coming up as you're speaking and on, on what you're talking about. A lot of what you're talking about in terms of the self-acceptance and the radical self-care, a lot of these things, um, so I work in the mental health field and uh, diet, uh, DBT is one of those things and CBT are both uh, cognitive behavior therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy are both uh, modalities that use this idea mm -hmm. to a great extent. And so I'm hearing reflection and, and reflecting on that. I'm going, wow, uh, a lot of the, the seeking the middle work that you're doing sounds like almost word for word <laughs> coming out of the manual I've got. Well, it it wouldn't be surprising because my mother is a dialectical behavioral therapy <laughs> therapist. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that's greatly influenced, uh, you know, how I've looked at things. And, you know, she was also the one who fed me a lot of Buddhism books early on in all mm -hmm. of this that definitely a lot of uh, Buddhist philosophy definitely fed into that, too. And yeah. then I believe he feeds into DBT, so it all makes sense. Absolutely. And um, the other thing I was going to say is uh, the process you're talking about kind of dancing with your, your chronic illnesses and things. And it sounds a lot to me, and I blame this having read Saran Girl's work. Um, it sounds a lot like courting a chot gore to become a, a, an ally. 
uh, mm-hmm. sp- spirit of illness is making mm-hmm. it your outlay. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. almost, almost like the exact same process. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of my spirit of- allies is essentially a spirit of illness, so it, it is definitely work I have done. Can you go? Also, some- I love I love those Sarangarel books, by the way. Oh, excellent! <laughs> I, I love them. I ran into them shortly after Odin snapped me up. They've been very helpful in, in mm-hmm. providing me some context before I ran into my elder. Mm-hmm. So would you, uh, how did you, uh, when you're, you're approaching the plant spirits here, is that something that happened before your work you started with Dionysus or after? After. Well, Dionysus has been there since, to some degree, since I was 13, but certainly since I, I, I kind of came into paganism through Dionysus. So um, he was there before almost anything. Uh, I, I think entheogen work kind of you know was a natural cognate to dionysianism so i think that's that that's the flow of it it's hard to entirely recall a lot of this happened like you know good 20 years ago for me or more but um but yeah dionysus is before everything that makes sense. So he, he kind of latched on you fairly early and, and was shaping yes. a lot of things for you. And he was the gateway drug to everything else. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There to are Hellenic so many levels to that statement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes. Gateway, for one thing. Uh, Dionysus is opener of the door. Uh, it's one of his epithets. Uh, Therapanoictus in Greek. Uh, but... Yeah, he uh, and he is a hell of a drug, uh, and and it was through Dionysus that I got interested in Hellenic polytheism. It's through Dionysus that I got interested in entheogens and ecstasis. Uh, you know, altered states of consciousness has become, you know, mainstay of of my practice, and that was that was all him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely had a proclivity for that even as a child, but but it was definitely Dionysus that really opened the door. And it was so Jim Morrison that opened the door to Dionysus. So. <laughs> ah, <laughs> it all goes yeah. back again to a door, to the doors. <laughs> Interesting. I guess uh, my interaction with Sandy and have, have revealed yeah. similar, similar threads. <laughs> and if it's not the doors, it's Bowie. If it's not Bowie, it's insert artist here. Uh, oh, yeah. I find that very fascinating about him. Uh-huh. Yeah, actually Jim Morrison and, and Bowie are the the two the only two real former humans that I have major cultists for. Um uh kind of hero cultist type of thing for uh both of them are and they're both deeply entwined with the Dionysian world, obviously. So there's layers to labyrinth is what you're telling me. <laughs> oh, labyrinth oh man <laughs> labyrinth that labyrinth uh, has shaped my life in a scary amount of ways <laughs> truly uh yeah and and strange how 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 much and how much the that the lowercase labyrinth you know symbolism came to mean in my life it all did actually start with the movie labyrinth <laughs> <laughs> Possibly an embarrassing degree of my <laughs> life started in that movie, but 
Oh, no, I think we're all there. We've all had those influences in our lives that have shaped our path. And it's just like you can't, you know, you can try to you can try to say they're not there, but they're just they're always there. It's just mm-hmm. there's certain musicians, certain artists, certain books that you've been exposed to. And and they just have a way of, you know, locking right into your brain. And, and that's that's it. They're there. They're part of your path. Yeah. And, and art should do that. I exactly. mean, that is what art is for. So it's true. Well, let me, this is a little bit of a segue. Um, a lot of what you talk about on some of your your art pieces and that sort of thing is using them to create doorways yourself or being objects that, that can help serve as doorways. Tell us a little bit more about some of the artwork that you're doing and the things that, the masks and the other thing that you've created. Yeah, uh, well, for me, you know, being, having one foot in either world is kind of, my purpose in life and and creating those gateways while you know creating a tangible physical object in our reality that is inspired by something from spirit world reality to me is like the perfect way to to make those doorways and to to uh kind of get a flow going back and forth between those worlds um just to me very similar to other things that people might not connect like oracular work uh for for instance very similar process to me uh bringing that information through physically uh so so masks masks were the first thing probably uh for me i you know again from dionysus (laughs) and and uh and learning about shamanism when i was first in college, uh, I think also brought me to, to masks. Um, but you know, I mean, there, you know, you could do a, a whole show on the symbolism of the mask, especially in a Dionysian context, uh, obviously. And, and, you know, it others, the, the person, like as far as masks being worn, you know, in ritual and stuff, it's, it, it others you immediately. Uh, and, uh, and again, kind of gives like a false face, so it can be a face of the spirit. It can be, you know, it's that that interface between between here and there. Um, so so yeah, so mask making is definitely one of them. I do I do whatever needs to be done. I don't really. It's not about the medium for me. Um, sure. I kind of flit around as far as the medium goes. I learn. I'm kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, as far as artistic <laughs> mediums. I. I learn as much as I need to do the thing that they're telling me I need to make, you know? So like lately it was photography has become a thing because that's what needed to be made. Uh, and I just kind of go with it as long as I need to. And then usually get moved on to the next thing. So, um, I'm definitely not a craftsman in that sense at all. Uh, but I just, uh, I just (laughs) go where they tell me. So, (laughs) But it's more about, you know, the 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 spirit energies brought through, um, which is why a lot of my uh, artwork these days is uh, released to the world in the form of uh, glamour bombs and uh, found <laughs> art. Basically, I much more. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not there to make art to to sell for the most part um, or to exhibit in some way as here's my art, uh, I'm making it to serve uh, purposes. So uh, I tend to 
just put them out in the world, out in nature, out in the city, wherever they need to be found by the right person. Uh, I kind of use art as uh, sort of found oracles a lot of the time. Try to just uh, see what messages need to come through and then put it where it feels like it needs to be put. And trust that the right person's going to find that message. <laughs> well, I was wondering about that because I'm, I'm looking. Your website is uh, birdspiritland.com. And if people go to the shops tab, there's two different uh, Etsy shops. That And I, the thing that I'm interested in, and I'm, I'm taking a glance at them, uh, the, you know, there's one that's definitely more spiritual art that, you know, mm-hmm. incorporates a lot of bones and, and that sort of thing. But your other shop has a lot of vintage items. But when I look at the items themselves, I can see what you're saying about using some of them, like found items as Oracle work, because I don't know, there's a certain sort of, I wouldn't even say they're similar objects, but the, the energetics, the feel, the, the, the kind of stuff that you have on both shops, there's like a weird sort of energetic overlap. Does that make sense? Well, it's interesting because, you know, that, that vintage Etsy shop, that, that's, you know, just my little, that's my way of compensating myself for my thrifting habit, basically. <laughs> like, you know, it's not, it's not a big deal shop or anything, but if I can sell a few things, then I can justify, you know, going to the flea market the next time for myself. And, uh, <laughs> But that, but but going to flea markets and going to thrift stores to me is like everything else. It's a magical uh, practice. Uh, I don't pretty much ever just walk in like I ritualize it. Like we, when I go to the flea market, I I prepare. I do certain you know kind of mini miniature spells i wear amulets i make offerings to hermes i make offerings to other spirits i do all sorts of stuff around these trips out to find things and a large part of that is just you know to to find things that i might be looking for that they might want to send me but along the way here and there you know i find something that i might be able to to sell in my shop. And so it doesn't surprise me that those objects too have acquired some <laughs> kind of uh, plus a lot of the stuff I'm selling there is also things that I owned at some point. You know, I, I get a lot of things. I hold on to them for a while. If I'm not feeling that connection, I let go of them. So those are often things I was drawn to in the first place. So, right. you know, well, I just, I guess where I'm going with that is like, I've had conversations before and I, I know Sarenth uh, will agree with this and, and many of the other spirit workers I know, like the, the story I always say is you're walking down a forest path and you see a rock and spirit says, yeah, that one should be on the other side of the path. And so you pick up this rock and you move it and you say, okay, why did I move it? And they're like, that's not your business. You were just yeah. supposed to move the rock. And so, I, I don't know, it seems weird. But like no when, I, yeah, when I When I see some of the items, the, the vintage dime store items and things like that, I think, you know, someone is going to scroll along and that to them it's going to be like, oh, that's my, uh, my grandmother had something just like that. I need that for yep. my ancestor altar. It's, it's just funny how stuff like that moves around. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I also have a whole thing with the little free libraries in our area. Oh, yeah. Um, those little, yeah, that people put up. And I will sometimes take things from them and then end up putting them in a different one. And, <laughs> and I also, like, I leave things in those that aren't books, too. Um, little messages to the world and stuff. <laughs> and uh, 
And I do. I think those things move around like they need to move around. Because I've certainly found things in there that I needed to find at that moment. And you're when you're constantly open, then I think those messages flow through a lot easier. And you can just, yeah, okay, I need to move this rock. Don't worry about it. Just do it. <laughs> yep. I think one of the big things for me has just been getting better and better at listening to that. And also, like, just shutting up about it. Like, not doubting it, second-guessing it, wondering what it's about, just like, okay, just do those things. And most of the time, you won't know why you did them. You won't know if they were even real or, or anything, but you do all of them as they come through, and you'll start seeing those results of that, you know, in a kind of more magical life overall and more strange synchronicities happening. Yeah, I, I, definitely, uh, I definitely hear you, because most of the ritual objects we've got around our home uh, came out of thrift stores. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, almost every offering vessel we've got, um, with the exception of uh, the skull-based one for Hella, mm. uh, came uh, from a thrift store. Most of right. our, yeah, almost everything. <laughs> right. You ever have spirit grab you by the ear and say, no, you're going into that barn sale. And you're like, no, I don't want to pull the car over. No, yep. you're going in. There's a yep. little barn there, and it's got a hayloft, and there's cool stuff in there, and something for there is my altar, and you need to go find it. Oh, great. Okay, here we go. <laughs> yep, been there, done that. Oh, I'm horrible for antique stores. My poor wife. <laughs> Another one? Yes, dear. <laughs> Why? Spirit's telling me. It'll be hopefully quick. Two hours later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's never quick, is it? No, no, no. You got to find that one, that one pipe that looks just odd enough. The the spirits are like that. Be the one. You were close, mm-hmm. but that's mm-hmm. the one. Or you know, you'll you'll. For me, a lot of it's uh, pipes, knives, uh, offering vessels, things like that are, are what usually end up catching my eye. And they are the ones I usually end up bringing home because a lot of them are very neglected, especially the pipes. Oh, yeah. Oh, it drives mm-hmm. me crazy. Um, but the, the rainbow flint that I use to light sacred fires, I found a huge box of it at a thrift <laughs> store. <laughs> I had so much yeah, of it. insisted I give it, some of it away. <laughs> <laughs> See, the other good thing about that, too, is that dovetails nicely with my interest in, you know, reducing my impact environmentally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm always a little wary. There is definitely, you know, a consumerist angle to certain realms of paganism that is unfortunate to me. And uh, I think the more we can you know, repurpose things for our shrines and whatnot, the the better, because we don't need to be buying more, you know, plastic junk right. you know, from China, basically, uh, for those. For, and I would rather deal with whatever energetic stuff might be left on something in a thrift store than I would the thing that is coming out of some godforsaken factory across the world. So <laughs> yeah. I really, uh, that, that that becomes important to me, too. Do you find a lot of the objects? Because uh, it looks like you do quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of vintage uh, work. Um, I had this experience with asparagus where uh, <laughs> I was trying to get me to cut it down with uh, certain power tools, and I was just not. It wasn't working. It would shut down. It wouldn't want to work. <laughs> and then I got a Japanese scythe and 
took it to the field and it went just great. Do you have similar experiences with uh, your vintage work? Oh, boy. I don't know anything particularly uh, relevant to that comes to mind, but that doesn't really surprise me either, you know. I mean, you just needed the right tool. The right tool can be all sorts of things. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. No stories are coming to mind for that one, but... (laughs) Well, I mean, you're doing a lot of plant-based work, and I, I assume that, that there's a lot of uh, kind of where I was going from that was a kind of expanded view of it's it's one thing to to buy something new, whether you're going to a nursery and picking up plants or whether you're growing it yourself. Um, a lot of your a lot of your work is is uh, reminds me of rewilding a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I do. I do like rewilding. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and you know, uh, even the, just what you said reminded me too. That you said whether you go to the the plan, you know, buy it from a nursery or, or start it from seed. But you know, if you if you start it from seed, you're, you buy it from the nursery, and then the next year you save that seed and mm. you plant it again. Mm-hmm. Then now you've got a plant that is related to the plant that you got to know. And if you do that for another few years, that's an interesting set of relationships. I'm actually looking forward to to building myself especially for uh annual plants that are going to you know die at the end of that year and and the only way you can continue them is to to save the seeds and start over again um with their children basically um you have the potential to kind of get involved in an entire ancestral line i suppose of plants which is kind of interesting huh when uh, since we're we're circling back around a second to the the topic of plant spirits, when you're working some with some of the poisonous uh, plants, do you find them as spirits a little bit more standoffish? Are they harder to build that relationship with? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, well, it, it just know, seems to me that they're, uh, they're poisonous for a reason. It's kind of like the antisocial yeah. person in the room. You know what I mean? That's the... <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, in a way, I feel like maybe I'm suited to that because I'm antisocial myself <laughs> and I can really relate. And if I was a plant, I'd probably be a nightshade plant. So, <laughs> Maybe that helps me get in there. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, they require more patience and slow getting to know you and caution and um, I don't know, what's the word? Uh, Like propitiation uh, for sure. Um, You know, uh, just just that is, that's their nature. Uh, but uh, but on the other hand, once you get in there, like somebody, like a person who is like that, you know, once you make that friend, then you're you're really in this like uh, <laughs> a special kind of relationship, you know that that you know not that many people have been let into that inner right. circle, uh, which is which is pretty cool. Maybe you got to have an in if with the family, you know, you're going to be like, hey, <laughs> the tomatoes like me, oh, those damn tomatoes. Yeah, they're part of the nightshade family, but they like everybody. We don't give no craps about what they like. <laughs> Actually, though, it has been making me look at all the other nightshade plants a little differently, uh, having having dealt, because they do all have 
poisonous parts to them. You know, you don't right. want to eat mm-hmm. tomato leaves or, or uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and I believe, actually, is it potatoes or tomatoes? One of those two things, when they were, like, introduced to Europe, people thought that they were poison, like they refused them. Because I can't remember if that was potatoes or tomatoes, because they knew that they were part of the nightshade family and they assumed that they must be poisonous, uh, had to be convinced that they were actually edible. Uh, I think it was tomato. Does make, and, yeah, yeah. And, you know, tobacco is also part of that family. So that that and and is a poison plant in many ways, uh, but one that people use all too casually. Uh, they're, they all definitely are related. I can, you can feel it. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't realize that about tobacco. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And a lot of those poison plants are very difficult to grow, too. Um, right. Like mandrake, especially, I've been struggling with, my goodness, because it's, it's just a tricky plant to get going. So that, again, invests you deeply in the relationship. <laughs> So if I could take the conversation in a, in a, in a tangent here, uh, when I'm looking at your, your biography, one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated with, especially, um, is that you spent the night in a holy cave above the temple of Delphi. Now that, that sounds really, (laughs) was there any really cool, like visions or anything? Tell, how did that go? Um, well, okay. So that's, that's the Karukian cave, which is above, it's, uh, very far above the temple of Delphi. Like we had to basically go to the next town over and then get a cab driver, (laughs) a game cab driver to drive us all along these like kind of um, forest roads to this place. You know, I had like a map and I'm pointing to him and trying to communicate and broke, you know, his broken English (laughs) and my tiny bit of Greek. And we're going like, and at some point he drops us off at the end of a road that you can't take a car down and says, yeah, you just walk up there. And I'm going, well, I hope he's right. Cause you know, if he's not, we're, cause he drove off, you know, we're like, we have no idea where we are if he, if he wasn't right. But uh, fortunately it, it was, True. Um, Kirkin Cave is amazing because it's not, you know, it's so far off the beaten path. It is not a tourist destination. So uh, my partner and I were there. We spent the night. We we smuggled blankets out of our hotel in Delphi <laughs> and, uh, and, and did this whole trip to get up there and, 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 and planned to spend the night in the cave. However... Two two problems with that. One, we tried to light a fire in the fire ring we found in there and and it immediately filled the entire cave with so much oh, no. smoke we could barely breathe. But I felt that also the nymphs there uh, were kind of like, you know, yeah, it's nice to visit in the daytime and thank you for the offering, but you can be getting out of our cave now. <laughs> so we we spent a very cold night outside the cave on this like rocky promontory above a valley that was entirely just populated by like, goat herds and there was all these goats in the valley below with their little bells clinking all night long extremely eerie uh, night we found a sheep skull on, above the cave on, on the mountain and uh, brought it into the mountain uh, into the cave and uh, and I left it uh, for the nymphs there uh, and then I let I lit some candles on some like stalagmites and and we just watched them from 
from the mouth of the cave all night. Uh, it was, it's an incredibly powerful spot there. It was used, you know, for ritual. Like when they first excavated the Kruken cave, they found thousands of knuckle bones from um, divination because people who were too poor to hire the Pythia for their oracles would go up to the cave and ask the nymphs. Oh, wow. And roll the knuckle bones and stuff. So, I mean, those nymphs, they're in the Homeric hymns. They're, you know, these are like famous, famous nymphs that, 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 uh, they're called the three eye that buzz around like bees in the mouth of the cave. And there was the, there was a swarm of bees in the mouth of the cave too. Um, wow. It was, it was uh, pretty incredible actually. Um, and yeah, and, and did some divinatory work there and got some very powerful stuff uh, while we were there. Uh, definitely worth the insane trip that it took to get there and then paid for it dearly on the way back where we decided we were just going to walk back down to Delphi. <laughs> from there. And, uh, and I had a map, like I had a topographical <laughs> detailed map that I thought, this is great. I can do this. We can, we can walk back down. It'll, you know, take a few hours. And, uh, and it was going really well until we got to this one part where on the map, it just looks like, you know, it starts descending but uh, that the path just descends down into the valley. But in reality, it was two, two paths. One that completely ended at a cliff, <laughs> a sheer drop down, and another path that continued down below, like hundreds of feet down below. Oh, and wow. no, they didn't actually meet, but on the map, it looked like it was one path. So oh. we, uh, we were lost for a while, uh, but we followed a goat herder. Uh, we had seen where a goat herder had come up with his goats, and we figured there's got to be a path down there, and went down that way, and eventually got back back to Delphi. But it was hours and hours in the you know 90 degree sun, and uh, <laughs> I definitely felt like we were paying for the privilege of having gone there. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun. I have to be honest with you; those are the kinds of adventures that you just. <laughs> People are like, you really did that? Yep, we sure did. <laughs> also, we we ran into some peacocks on the side of Mount Parnassus Ooh. as we're doing that. Ooh. In the middle of nowhere, there was a farm of that were raising peacocks for some reason. So that was pretty surreal. <laughs> <laughs> but those kind of adventures are always better afterwards when you're telling the story right. than right. at the time when you're going... And I'm just like praying I'm not going to be, you know, roasted sunburned and we're not going to die of dehydration because we hadn't brought enough water, you know. Oh, no. And you're schlepping these these stolen blankets back to this hotel. <laughs> <laughs> we're at that very moment. Yeah, housekeeping was like, going, no one knows hell? where we've gone. You know, we didn't, nobody knew what we were doing or where we gone. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, I love that. Delphi is truly one of the most holy places I have ever been to. Every every bit of that place is just, it's holy. It's just insane. Uh, uh, I, I wish I could spend a, a lot more time there sometime and really, really sink in. And I'd love to go during the winter sometime when Dionysus is in charge of Delphi, uh, which I would suspect would be a whole other feel to it. Oh, especially for you, right? Mm-hmm. 
Though, you know, at that time, I I was also had cultists going for a pollen. And for many years, I was doing a, a Pythia-style high-seat oracle with the pollen. So, I mean, I, that that was definitely a big deal for me going there for that reason. I actually crawled under the temple too. <laughs> There's a, you know, the the Adaton, the the place where the Pythia actually gave her oracles is beneath the temple at Delphi, and and if you go to what's left of the ruins, there was like a little crawl space under there, and I'm like, <laughs> well, I I have to go under it, you know. I'm sure I'm not supposed to, but I have to go under the temple of Delphi, and I, I just started crawling as fast as I could until some security guard or whatever found me and yelled <laughs> in Greek or whatever. And I played the dumb tourist. Oh, I didn't know I couldn't go in there. But <laughs> <laughs> but I, I actually, I, I burned some bay leaves on the, on the altar at the temple. And it was, I just sat there thinking like, I might be the first person who's, you know, smelled the smell of burning bay leaves here in 2,000 years or something. It's It was pretty amazing. That is holy work. Uh, I, mm, I, can only, I can only imagine what it must have been like to stand there at that altar. Mm-hmm. Can you describe mm-hmm. it a little bit for our listeners, what the altar looks like and what that experience was like? Oh, well... I mean, literally, we're just talking. It was a piece of stone that had like a little plaque on it that said "altar" or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but it it wasn't uh, anything spectacular. I mean, you know, in in Greek temples, like the, the altar of Bomos, which is which is outside the temple, it was generally a pile of stones or a large stone slab or something. You know, just meant for burning offerings, burning sacrifices on. So itself, not, not what we think of as an altar, like what we have in our homes, um, that kind of thing. Uh, but that actually the, the burning, uh, Bailey's I'm kind of smushing two visits together. I, I went to Delphi twice, mm. five years apart, uh, oh, wow. one on my own and one with my partner. So the, the time I burnt the Bailey's the altar, the, the first time when I thought that to myself, that, that was the first time I went, in 1998 uh, by myself. And it was interesting because that whole trip, I thought I was really going, you know, I was, I was kind of a baby pagan at that point. I'd only been doing it a couple of years. And uh, I really expected that I would go to Greece and like, you know, that I would have just some major epiphany and the gods would like descend <laughs> upon me. And I, I would feel so much closer to them because I was in this holy land and and I really didn't. And that was actually my takeaway. Because I came back and I said, you know, I feel the gods closer to me where I am doing ritual for them and calling to them and worshiping them than I do in places that, you know, have been destroyed by time or by Christians or, right. you know, whatever. And and where nobody necessarily, especially at that time, where nobody was really worshiping them anymore. Um, and and yes, some of those places, Delphi was an exception, are, are, I do believe are still sacred to the gods, but but I did leave that trip thinking uh, that the gods were more present where we were calling to them. Uh, so that, that was a big takeaway for me that, to start off my journey, basically. I think that's really an important lesson, obviously. I mean, I, I don't know. I think... I've had similar experiences, I think, where where you come to that realization that it's not, you know, 
yes, there are such things as vision quests or spirit quests or that sort of thing or, or a, a whole holy pilgrimage sort of thing. But at the same point in time, your your day to day work with the 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 land of a tear and and the spirits around you, it. it there's a certain power to it that mm-hmm. it's hard to understand when you're first taking steps on a path like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- those those places are so glamorous, right? Like, ooh, you know, I mean, who, what Hellenic polytheist doesn't want to go to Greece? And and they should if they can, but but you know, we shouldn't put all of our our stuff into that. Like where we are doing our our rituals, our practice, Practices, those places are holy, you know, they naturally hold, I mean, every place has, you know, land whites and nymphs and spirits and, um, and then we can make them even more powerful by our work there and our, our festivals and our rituals and, and, uh, and, and that's the work that's, that's the important stuff we're doing every day. Definitely. Definitely. And we lose something if we, if we, you know, put ourselves too much in those like longing for other places or other times or anything, you know, I mean, we have to root ourselves because to now is holy and here is holy. Well, I think it, it can form a kind of excusism that we use, you know, it's like, well, I would do more of my spiritual work, but I don't have this item or I, Mm -hmm. I would be more connected to the gods if I could go and go to this other place and do it. Or I could, you know, if I could go to where those gods were originally worshiped, it somehow would be Mm -hmm. a better connection. And I think, you know, at least in my experience in my life, sometimes we're using that just, you know, to have the excuse so we don't feel like we have to put in the day-to-day work you know what i mean that that, it's that it's that uh thing to hold ourselves back it's that shadow work aspect of it Mm -hmm. definitely and i think it can prevent us from taking the time um that is required to really learn about where we are and what is sacred where we are and and how to interrelate with that um, if we're caught too much in in those kind of more uh, romanticized ideas of other places. So, so something that kind of um, came up as you were talking about um, the places we live in being holy, if not holier than the, the places where the, many of our gods originate from, um, to me it occurs... That, uh, something that Glenn and I have talked on and off about both on the show and elsewhere is that we're rather part of a diaspora mm-hmm. and and that part of our, our job, I'm glad you brought up the human aspect because um, you know, the gods do make places holy, but we actually, you know, <laughs> we actually need to worship them where we, lo- where we are and make sacred mm-hmm. places for them to be. Mm-hmm. Um <sighs> You know, uh, it's it's one of the things that I'm, I'm learning as as I work with the Great Lakes, you know, relating to them in, in my own context as a heathen is mm-hmm. as important as understanding them as Manitou or Manitou, excuse me. Um, mm-hmm. And that's powerful work in and of itself because it's it's not it's it's decolonizing the polytheist mindset from I need to consume something in order to have an experience of the holy. Now, mm-hmm. granted, I mean, here, here we work with entheogen. and sometimes you literally do <laughs> need to consume something. <laughs> There's a different kind holy. of consuming. Yeah. <laughs> but this, this consumptive mindset where if, if I'm not 
you know, buying that plane ticket or if I'm not, you know, grabbing that rock from that place, then the work is somehow less. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be more of a, a comfort in pagan polytheist circles with putting down real serious, serious roots where we are and not just looking to the, the mother country where this particular mm-hmm. culture might have come out of. Yeah, and finding the numinous where we are because it's everywhere and, you know, you're neglecting your local spirits if you're too focused on that other stuff, you know. I, a large part of my practice, uh, because I uh, am carless and and I walk everywhere, so my my local polytheism is like super, super local polytheism. It's, you know, what is in walking distance of me. And I have, uh, I right down the street from a creek, uh, and a little ash wood, and it's just like, you know, a tiny, tiny scrap of forest, has some jogging paths by it, you know, the only people who probably ever go into the actual trees part of that are are some homeless campers, uh, and, and I love that place. I have done so much ritual in that area, because it's right down the street from me, but also because it's got some definite numinous presence, and I noticed that right away. And so I started cultivating it. So I've lived here in this place I'm living for uh, about 10 years now. And over that time, I have, you know, I have buried effigies in that wood. I have tossed no numerous, numerous offerings into that creek. I have, like carried torches through the field i have done so i there are some uh storm drain tunnels that i used to use to do the oracle of trophonius uh which was originally done in this hey you know underground cave type thing uh near delphi in greece i started doing in these giant scary you know water runoff tunnels uh in this park uh and so i have i've really cultivated and developed those uh those places and you know created bases for these gods from these foreign gods in my local landscape and uh and then now that's become my holy place so uh one of the things that i wanted to ask you about was your new oracle system that you're you're you've brought out can you dig into the girls underground and and dig into how that came about and yeah. where, how that generated and where sure. that's gone? Well, it was Labyrinth. <laughs> it was the movie Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's really what Labyrinth is the the whole prototype for this. So, so I, I was obsessed with Labyrinth. That that movie came out when I was nine I think or eight or nine and uh and I saw it in the theater and uh then I saw it about 500 more times literally and uh and and over time I started noticing that um there were other stories that I would find and other movies other books uh that that had a lot of the same elements and not just the the obvious ones like okay it's you know it's a girl and she's going on some kind of quest and she has a there's an adversary and she has some companions and and stuff but also really specific things that would show up over and over like she spends time in a place filled with junk or she forgets herself or there's talking doors or you know all these very specific things that I kept seeing over and over repeated in these stories and I realized that this this was a very specific archetype like a girl's girl's version of a hero's journey but something that wasn't just 
with the gender flip, but was really unique to uh, like to adolescent girls. Um, and I started seeing this and building on this and started tracking all the instances I ever found. And then I eventually just started a blog where I was tracking every instance I had ever found of what I was calling girls underground stories. Cause it's a girl and she either goes underground literally or figuratively. Uh, and, uh, and at the point where I had 250 examples of this and I'm still not even kind of done, uh, I had been thinking for a long time I wanted to somehow do something with this. Um, and then, strangely, uh, the Oracle idea came because um, because someone asked me, that someone thought I had made one. Hmm. And, uh, and, and she had remembered something, she had basically misremembered something I used to have on an old website, but it, it had nothing to do with Girls Underground. She thought that there was a Girls Underground Oracle, and I went, you know... <laughs> There really ought to be a girls underground oracle, <laughs> and, and that was the genesis of of that idea. Um, but the idea of the oracle is it's drawing on the power of this story. So it's not it's not visual. The cards are just bits of the story, basically. Uh, little that story broken down into all of its tiny little components. And using that um, the, that sacred story as uh, a guide on one's own sacred story of one's life, um, which I was hoping would appeal to people who don't necessarily look like the typical girls underground. Um, I know that it definitely repeats throughout life and doesn't have to be just adolescence, but I suspected that maybe not even just uh, female persons would be interested in it seems like it's speaking to a lot of different people which which i like um there's there's something really special about that story uh i feel obviously because i'm completely obsessed with it (laughs) (laughs) but labyrinth was the the labyrinth was totally the beginning and labyrinth is sort of the the quintessential model of like the classic girls underground story uh, and you know my my first name legally is Sarah, and her name is Sarah, and mm-hmm. so I was always very connected to that <laughs> to that story, um, on so many levels, really. Uh, That's really kind of fascinating. I hadn't until you said it. I really hadn't thought about the the girls underground and that that reflection of the hero's journey that it is for. Uh, girls of a certain age, there's a certain sort of commonality there. That's really kind of fascinating. When I'm looking through the the list of, of books and movies that inspired you in television shows and everything else, I, I actually hadn't realized what an expansive list that was. There must really be something that does appeal to to that sort of uh, uh, a part of our psyche. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And I think, you know, a lot of the writers and such of these stories at least know in some subconscious way that they're part of this archetype. Cause you'll see, you know, I, Alice in Wonderland is definitely a big part of this too. And I cannot even, I should have started counting at some point, but I cannot count the number of girls underground books that will at some point reference Alice in Wonderland. Like they know they're part of the story, you know, and like the girls, the protagonists, the actual girls underground, the characters, they often refer to other stories that they they 
are in a story, you know, like that, that's sort of part of, it's become part of the archetype. They being sort of aware that you're, you're in this sacred story. Um, and, and that gives you more volition in it because you can, uh, you know, you can see those patterns happening in, in your life and what maybe you need to do next. Which is sort of the idea of the Oracle is to give you that same knowledge of story, you know, kind of peek behind the curtain and and see the workings of it and be able to anticipate a little bit what to do. Well, and I, I, I never really like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm kind of blown away looking at this because I never quite realized... <laughs> You know, because I'm I'm a huge fan, and a lot of the times, Sarah and I will talk about films and TV shows and comic books, and you know, and I'm just you know, yeah, sure, Alice in Wonderland, sure, I understand that, you know, okay, the, you know, the Spirit Away, yeah, okay, oh, oh, wait, V from Vendetta, yeah, that is, yeah, that is a girl underground yes. story, or Tank Girl, wait, wait a minute, you know, and it's like <laughs> I'm like. Wow, there is so much more here than I ever really thought of. And even some of the ones that I, I wouldn't have never for a million years have thought about. But you have uh, on your list here things like Poltergeist and Silent Hill and Friday mm. the 13th. It's like, mm. oh, my gosh, oh, they are. Well, they're all movies. connected. There's a whole kind of, yeah, there's like a, a sort of subgenre of Girls Underground that is horror movies. And uh, Poltergeist aside, a lot of those tend to have an older like a like a grown adult woman is the protagonist Mm -hmm. and she's often saving trying to rescue her child that seems to be the 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 adult version of a girl's underground tries to rescue her child and is often in a horror setting for whatever reason that seems to be how that's manifesting which is kind of interesting so like as she grows up the the challenges get more terrifying i guess (laughs) but um, Hill, uh, Hellraiser, uh, Friday the Thirteenth, oh, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Nightmare on Elm Street, all these ones, they they they're always like, like a teenager or an adult woman, and you know some really terrifying supernatural scary guy uh, after her, mm-hmm. and often like labyrinthine other worlds, mm. underground other worlds, you know, um, yeah, it's a big one. The first two alien movies come to Actually, mind think, immediately. Hmm? The first two alien movies come to mind immediately for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. aliens on there. Mm-hmm. Alien. Yeah, actually, I think my partner actually suggested that because I hadn't seen it. Like, I, I mean, I had seen the movie, I hadn't uh, recognized at first that that was also Girls Underground. So we rewatched it, and I thought, yeah, you're right, <laughs> you're right. Because especially when they don't come in like the kind of typical, you know, fantasy format, you don't necessarily recognize it at first, but, mm-hmm. but it's everywhere. It really is. It's a lot more pervasive than I, than I, is Stranger Things on your list? Uh, I, yeah, yes, because, uh, yeah, because the Upside Down is underground. <laughs> right, exactly. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Damn it, I need to see this now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Buffy, Buffy the Vampire right. Slayer, especially first season Buffy. Oh, yeah. uh, fifth season Doctor Who, Who reboot, uh, definitely Girls Underground with uh, with Ape Pond. Um, there's just, yeah, it, it keeps showing up. <laughs> That's fascinating. And there's probably tons I haven't even found because I don't, like, watch those things or read those. You know, I'm, I'm right. sure there are tons of comics. I, I'm just not a comics person. I have maybe a few comics on there either because i did happen to read them or someone recommends something to me but i bet there's a 
a whole world out there I haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely really fascinating. How's how's the response been to this work? Um, well, it's it's really good. I mean, you know, I've been doing this blog forever, um, just kind of just for myself, you know. <laughs> I didn't really know if anyone else would care. Once I actually made the oracle and tried to get it out there in the world, I was really happy to see that people immediately understand this concept. Like, yeah, it obviously really strikes a chord with people because I don't have to explain it very much before they're already coming up with examples that, that fit right into it. And um, now that the Oracle's been out for a bit, I've been hearing back from people who are using it and finding it really effective. So I'm glad to hear that because, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a different approach to, you know, a general card Oracle than most of the ones out there right. because it is it is sort of telling a story rather than using imagery symbolism uh, and the idea is so you can like pull a couple of different cards and like let them tell a story you know in order or uh, tell the story of your past present and future and it seems to be working uh, I don't know I use it <laughs> well I it seems to me like if you've got someone especially a younger person with uh feminine energy that that is trying to get onto their path this seems like a perfect thing to give them because not only is it a, a good oracle tool but there's a lot of empowerment in it as well like that that aspect of the story the hero's journey just takes is so dominant in a lot of our in a lot of our media and stories that we take in that it seems like this is a real empowering tool for people oh absolutely and it's and it's specifically because the girl like a girl underground has volition and agency like a, like I'll see things that are I disqualify as girls because the girl's just kind of like sitting there, you know, and stuff's happening to her and she's not really doing anything. That's not a girl underground like girl underground, you know, does things she she sometimes she gets herself into trouble, but then she gets herself out of the trouble. You know, she isn't rescued by anyone. She's rescuing. She's usually either saving a family member or she's saving the world. She often finds out that she is something bigger than she ever thought she was. She often starts out kind of a misfit or is completely on her own. Her parents are either gone or they're they're just really distracted and, and not very attentive to her. And and yet, you know, she has this adventure and she accomplishes something meaningful through her own resources. Uh yeah, it's it's super empowering. Um I recently had the opportunity to get involved with a local um organization that is like um you know, works with uh, at-risk youth, uh, young girls. It's a place for for adolescent girls to to be and and to express themselves and have a safe place to be. And uh, and I reached out to them with this oracle, and uh, now I'm working on doing some kind of workshop with them for the girls there because I really think that this could be a really empowering, boldening kind of. Uh, concept to introduce to them oh hell yeah oh please please <laughs> update us on how that goes that is so freaking cool <laughs> yeah i'm i'm completely out of my depth i have no idea what this is going to look like yet but i know i have to do it so <laughs> you know what if my therapist is willing to work with oracle cards with me and work through my personal issues i think you're gonna be just fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
I, it seems to me that, I mean, just a workshop where if you just pulled together uh, girls of a certain age and just showed them how to do a layout and then compared the story that they're getting from the cards to and how it relates to their own personal story and, and you know, oh, this reading sounds more like me, but that one sounds more like you sort of thing. Just the mm-hmm. just the conversations mm-hmm. alone would be so good for community building and confidence building. I mean, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it really sounds and incredible. It, and there's also some ways to work with the Oracle that have nothing to do with oracles like just using it as a storytelling prompt using it as like a storytelling game where everybody Uh gets some cards and you go in a circle and you have to make those cards into a story collaboratively so there's there's a lot of options there too yeah definitely keep us updated on that yeah keep us updated because i think that is a fascinating (laughs) process awesome to make sure that you pull out of your underground to you know, you can't retreat too much anymore. We've we've now oh, no. we've put this out into the universe, and uh, you know what happens now. That's true. It actually that has been a constant theme, frankly, in in my life recently. Is <laughs> as like you know, if I just if I just had things the way I would like my natural proclivities, I would just you know definitely be you know I'd be that witch in the hut on the edge of the village and I'd never come out of there, but, uh, but th- things keep pulling me out and the work needs to be done. And, you know, if, if that's what needs to happen, then I will e- even do that. <laughs> Sarah, I'm now throwing complete strangers under the bus. This is good. This is excellent. It's no longer just me. I like this. <laughs> but I mean, this, this work is so powerful and that you, you not only brought it from concepts to paper you brought it to fruition is powerful work in and of itself i mean talk about taking something from seed to plant Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this has been growing for like i've probably been working on this idea for 20 years one way or another had a slow fermentation (laughs) oh no but i i love it because i've worked on some oracle cards for myself that I do incorporate into some of my work. And I know what a daunting process that can be because there are so many options and ways that you can approach these things. And you, you kind of mm-hmm. have to let it ferment for a while and grow and figure out what's going on with it before it's a very organic process. I, at least for me, I couldn't sit down and just totally mm-hmm. coldly and logically say, well, I want this to apply to this and that to apply to that. It just, it didn't yeah. work that way for me. Yeah, well, I had to, uh, yeah, I had like an initial, when I first had that, when I finally got that I wanted to make it, you know, based on story and have just the the elements of the story as each card, I kind of wrote out all those elements, you know, and said, okay, like, this is basically what it would look like. And and it was okay. It, like, made sense. But it wasn't quite there until, like, I got in enough of, you know, uh, connected state to get basically at one point just a, a download of what these cards need to be and everything around, and then that was the thing that worked. And at that point, I didn't even question it anymore. I just, you know, went from there. It just went forward because I knew that was the right configuration. Uh, yeah, you can't entirely do it intellectually. Right. No, you you certainly can't. I mean, it helps to have an intellectual understanding of, you know, how an oracular system works and the kinds of questions it needs to be able to answer in some way um, so that it's not totally random. But 
But after that, I will always trust inspiration over anything. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I find that a lot of Oracle systems sometimes answer very universal and very and some are very, very specific. Um, are there specific Oracle questions that the girls underground works very well with and some that it doesn't? Or was it kind of made to operate well, in this in, in between her space? I definitely think it works well with like specific and even practical questions. You know, um, I, I, I'll say that's mostly what I tend to do too. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it will function for kind of sweeping broad questions, but like, what should I do about this situation? What should I do next? You know, what that kind of thing it's because it's telling a story it's it's very suited for that what's the next plot development you know where is my story going uh or what what are the plot developments that led me to this point or anything like that it, it's it's where it really works the best i think excellent did you find that there were certain characters certain beings were pulling you in different directions as you developed the oracle um, you know, because mm-hmm. when I when I hear the story of the girl underground, I immediately think of Gunlod mm-hmm. and Brewing of the Mead. Um, but that's that's my reflection. But I was I'm curious as like, did your spirits push you for input, or did they kind of say, hey, you know, maybe you should think about it in this direction? Um, well, I think that you know I've been thinking about this concept for so long. I I think once I once I sat down to do this, it all flowed out pretty straightforwardly um, for me because I think, I, you know, I've been wrestling with the whole idea for just so many years that um, I think all that work got done along the way there. <laughs> um, you know, and I mean, I I live the girl's underground story. I know it intimately. It is my story. It directly mm-hmm. describes the entire progression of my spiritual life, including like, you know, I mean, my... My my primary uh, spirit companion is is you know was at one point and is sometimes still my adversary. Uh, you know, some other spirits are my companions in this in the story. So uh, I've kind of I I have done and will do again all that battling and and, and stuff as part of that process. I think the Goblin King made her do it, Sarah. Aren't you paying attention? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Ooh, I got a face palm. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Jareth is full of lessons. That's right. Oh yes. <laughs> well, I mean, so much of that girls underground archetype is based on that particular relationship. You know, uh, she she uh, the the whole thing about, for instance, at, before the final con confrontation with the adversary she she must confront him alone you know the companions have to either abandon her or they have to go away for some reason in labyrinth they know it she says like aren't you coming with me they say no you have to go alone because you know that's the way it's done like they know that they're in a girl's underground story right in there if that is the way it is done then that is the way you must do it (laughs) Which is a good lesson, really, for a lot of spirit work. It sure is. Jeez. It definitely is. 
It definitely is. Well, I think, uh, should we go ahead and, and wrap it up here? Is there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about real quick? No, that's that's good for me. <laughs> All right. Gosh, it's been great having you on. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm encouraging everybody to uh, check out that uh, Girls Underground Oracle because that's really fascinating work. And they can find out more about you at your website, which is birdspiritland.com. So, and we really appreciate you coming out from your hut of seclusion <laughs> to have a conversation with us tonight. Thank you for drawing me out. <laughs> You're welcome. It seems to be a thing for us lately. So I very much appreciate you being willing to come out and, and speak with us and explore all these things with us, and I'd love to have you on again. All right, great. Thank you so much. Take off that dumb